Please open your Bibles to the Gospel of John. Last week I began a new series of sermons preaching through John's Gospel. And I concluded last week in verse 28 in that section of Scripture there from verse 19 to 28 the Pharisees came from Jerusalem and asked John the Baptist who he was because he was baptizing with water. And make a point or an observation that I may have failed to make last week. When John is baptizing with water, he is undermining the temple. The temple in Jerusalem had a lot of water baptisms where the priests would clean their hands and basically before they would offer sacrifices, the priests would baptize themselves and for the forgiveness of the people to bring animals in Jerusalem. And John's water baptism is basically saying that the priests are illegitimate, meaning we've got to move on now to the new covenant. So that's why the Pharisees are really offended that John is doing something that is basically replacing the temple here and moving it forward into, into the future. So they're inspecting him. In verse 29, here's where John begins to see Jesus coming to be baptized. I want to read from verse 29 to the end of the chapter. And I'm not going to repeat this throughout the sermon, but I want to read it as a whole because there's a lot of words that come up here repetitively that I want to emphasize as I read, and you can listen to it, and I'm going to talk about it in the sermon. Verse 29 says this, The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This is He of whom I said, After me comes a man who is preferred before me, for He was before me. I did not know Him, but that He should be revealed to Israel. Therefore, I came baptizing with water. And John bore witness, saying, I saw the Spirit descending from heaven like a dove, and He remained upon Him. I did not know Him, but He who sent me to baptize with water said to me, Upon whom you see the Spirit descending and remaining on Him, this is He who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and testified that this is the Son of God. Again, the next day, John stood with two of his disciples and looking at Jesus as he walked, he said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak and they followed Jesus. Then Jesus turned and seeing them following, he said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which is to say when translated teacher, Where are you staying? He said to them, Come and see. They came and saw where he was staying and remained with him that day. Now it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which is translated the Christ. 
And he brought him to Jesus. Now when Jesus looked at him, he said, You are Simon, the son of Jonah. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated a stone. The following day, Jesus wanted to go to Galilee, and he found Philip and said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida, the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. And Nathanael said to him, Can anything good come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, Come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming toward him and said to him, Behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit, Nathanael said to him, How did you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, Before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered and said to him, Rabbi, you are the Son of God. You are the King of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, Because I said to you, I saw you under the fig tree. Do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, most assuredly, I say to you, hereafter you shall see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending upon the Son of Man. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, we pray for your wisdom and insight as you reveal the person of Christ to us through this passage of Scripture. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, as you well know, before you see a movie, what do you often see first? You often want to go and look at the trailer. That's what it's called. The trailer gives you a glimpse of the movie. If the trailer is good and you look at it, you say, yeah, let's go spend all that money and go watch the movie. Well, this kind of is what's going on here in John chapter 1. This is kind of like the trailer. Um, There's a lot of repetition here in this passage of coming to see Jesus. And as you're reading this, you see Andrew, you see Peter, you see Nathaniel, you see uh, John the Baptist is pointing him out. Um, All this coming to see. And Jesus even says, come see. And what it's like is you're in the narrative. John wants you to read this book. And as you're reading it, keep reading it to read the rest of it. So we're watching the trailer. Let me repeat to you again the many times that the word seeing or looking or finding is mentioned in this passage. Three times in the first paragraph, John talks about what he has seen. Jesus tells Andrew and Peter to come and see. He tells Peter, uh, Philip and Nathaniel to come and see. And then Um, Andrew tells Peter, we found the Messiah. Philip tells Nathanael, we found him of whom Moses wrote about. And then Jesus even mentions that uh, uh, he even mentions that they are he is seeing things in the passage. Jesus saw Nathanael. He says, "Um, I saw you under the fig tree. Now, Now, let me tell you this. It doesn't mean that Jesus looked over there. And saw him. That's not what Jesus is talking about. 
Nathaniel was on the other side of a hill or something or miles away. You could not see him physically with your eyes under the fig tree. Jesus is saying, I saw you because I know all things. I am God. That is his way of exemplifying his deity and how he knows all things. He knew that Philip and Nathaniel were having a conversation, but he's using the word see to explain it. Now, today, what I want to do is give you three reasons for the seeing theme in this passage. And the and second, I want to talk about Jesus' baptism and Jesus' background. So let me give you three reasons for the emphasis of the seeing and the finding and the looking at Jesus in this passage of Scripture. The first reason is because of how chapter 1 begins. Look at verse 18. In verse 18, this is from last week's sermon, John writes and says this, No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten Son who is in the bosom of the Father, He has declared Him. You need to remember that in John's context when he's writing this, he's writing to his Jewish audience, and what John is writing would be very shocking, very offensive, actually, to a Jewish culture that has not believed in Jesus Christ. Because the Jews have always considered God to be invisible and unable to be seen. Remember what God told Moses in Exodus 33, verse 20? No man can see me and live. Also, in the tabernacle, in the temple, there were curtains everywhere. The holy places, you could not see them. God basically covered those holy zones with curtains. Only the priests could go in there. The Jews basically lived in a world where God was invisible, unseen. And that's just what it was a given. That's what you expect. But now, John is making the argument that God has now stepped out of the curtain so to speak. What was inside the Holy of Holies has now opened the curtain and walked out as a manner of speaking here, okay? That heaven has now opened and God has stepped down and He's now walking on the earth. He's enfleshed Himself. That's why John begins this whole entire chapter of saying, you have not seen God at any time except through the person of His Son. That's why John over and over again, is emphasizing the looking, the seeing, um, the tangible, physical aspect of the Lord Jesus Christ in their presence. So it was very offensive to his Jewish audience. But this leads me to my, my second reason for all the seeing in this passage. It's not only for how it began, but it's how the passage ends. Look at how the passage ends in verses 50 and 51. He says, Nathaniel, I saw you under the fig tree. And in verse 51, it ends climactically saying this, Most assuredly, I say to you, after, you have, after, after this, you will see heaven open and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. <clears throat> 
What Jesus is doing here is he's quoting a small phrase from Genesis chapter 28, verse 12. In that context, Jacob is sleeping with a rock under his head. And in his dream, he sees a ladder going all the way up into heaven. And God is at the top of the ladder. And angels are ascending and descending among that ladder. And what he is seeing is a gateway to heaven. That's why Jesus says you will see angels of God ascending and descending on, on the Son of Man, referring to Himself. Now let me point out a big difference between Jacob's ladder and what Jesus says here about Himself being the ladder. You remember whenever I mentioned Genesis chapter 28 in that vision, where was God? In that vision, in that dream, God was at the top of the ladder. So in, in Jacob's vision, it's as if to get to God, you go all the way up there and get to God and the ladder's coming down, but God's way up there. But when Jesus refers to this ladder, who is the ladder? He is. It's like God has now come down and now God has provided a way from earth to heaven. And who is that ladder? It's Jesus Christ. That's a big difference between Genesis and Jesus, between the vision or the dream that Jacob had and how Jesus is applying that ladder. Now God is the gateway. Now God gives you the access to heaven. So this is why the seeing theme is so important because now they are seeing salvation. They're seeing the fulfillment of Jacob's ladder. It's Jesus Christ. Lastly, a third reason for the seeing theme is that John wants you to come and see. He's inviting you. This is the trailer. He is inviting you now to read the rest of the book. Do you want to see Jesus? Do you want to know him? You have to read the rest of the book. He's got you by your he's got your attention now. He's coming from heaven. He's been baptized. The spirit is now. Now you can go and read the rest of the book. That's three reasons why John is emphasizing the seeing aspect in this passage because he wants you to see Jesus by faith as you read the book. Now let me move on now to John's baptism, excuse me, Jesus' baptism and Jesus' background. I want to pick up two themes here from this extended passage of Scripture. You'll notice in verse 33, John says, I did not know him, but that he who sent me to baptize of water said to me, whom you see the Spirit descending upon and remaining upon him, it is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. What John is saying here is that, yes, he knew Jesus growing up. They were cousins. They hung out together. They played in the street together. Stuff like that. But when Jesus was baptized by John, heaven opened up. The Holy Spirit came down. And that's how God, the Father, revealed to John and revealed to the whole nation of Israel, now this is the Christ. He's being announced. He has been God all along. They didn't realize it 
until the baptism. They didn't realize it until the Holy Spirit made that visible, clear declaration. And John now has a message to preach. The Messiah is here. Now, what I want to do for you is simply apply this to you. Notice that the, what Jesus is mentioned by John is what Jesus will do. He says that Jesus is the one who is going to baptize with the Holy Spirit. Let me ask you the question. Have you been baptized with the Holy Spirit? When were you baptized with the Holy Spirit? Here is a good way and a helpful way for you to answer that question if somebody ever asks you that question. The answer is yes. I was baptized with the Holy Spirit when I received baptism from the church. That's when the Holy Spirit baptized me. And that's how the Holy Spirit baptized me. Yes, Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit through the sacrament of baptism. That's the truth of Scripture. That's how the Apostle Paul applies baptism to the church, to the local church. This is what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 13. He's referring to the sacrament of baptism, and he says this, By one Spirit, we were all baptized into one body. You remember earlier in this worship service, I was reading to you 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Those people did not give credit to the Holy Spirit. They were saying, Cephas baptized me, Paul baptized me, Apollos baptized me. They were trying to give credit to people. Paul later in that same letter talks about the presence of the Holy Spirit in and through the sacraments. That is baptism, the supper, the, supper, the Lord's Supper, and through the preaching of the Word. That is how the Holy Spirit baptizes people today. And the reason why that is so important, because that's why God gave baptism to the church, so that you can be affirmed in your faith, that you can know that God loves you. It's like a tool. It's like a, um, a way in which you can affirm yourself, Lord, you have baptized me with your Holy Spirit. Lord, I know you belong to me. I know you love me. That's why God gives those means of grace to the church. Your job throughout the rest of your life is to prove and show that that baptism of the Holy Spirit was not a common work that is just generically given to everyone, but an effectual work. This is why our confession of faith makes a helpful distinction between a common work of the Holy Spirit versus an effectual work of the Holy Spirit. A person who is baptized by the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism, who stays in the church for a while, but never grows in their faith and then wallows off and then never comes to church and never persevere, they were baptized by the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism, but only in a common manner, which it did not effect into saving faith. But you're baptized into the Holy Spirit 
And as you persevere, as you grow, as your faith grows in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're showing and demonstrating that that was an effectual work of the Holy Spirit. Everyone in the sacrament of baptism is baptized by the Holy Spirit. The only question is, is it, going, is it common in the sense that it just kind of starts, but it doesn't conclude in how God intended it to, to, to conclude with saving faith? Or does it grow into saving faith? That's how and why it's so important to have that strong understanding of baptism. That's how Jesus baptizes with the Holy Spirit today. Another practical application of this is that if you don't understand and believe that you are baptized by the Holy Spirit in the sacrament of baptism, then what you're going to do is you're going to make up another sacrament because you're going to think that was not good enough. And this is why the charismatic movement is so powerful in different areas. They don't believe that the sacrament of baptism is good enough. So what they'll do is say, you know what you got to do to really have the Holy Spirit? You have to speak in tongues. Uh, you got to speak in some heavenly prayer language. You got to have some kind of ecstatic experience. Uh, you got to do this. You got to have that. This really then is the evidence of being baptized by the Holy Spirit. And then you get caught into the cult of fanaticism, emotionalism, all these things. And what it's doing is you're trying to grab for for that better sacrament, for that better means of grace because you've forgotten about your baptism a long time ago and you don't think that that's good enough. Uh, there's other ways in which this uh, people who de-emphasize the baptism of the Holy Spirit in the sacrament, they replace it with another sacrament. For example, uh, there's different types of extreme lifestyles that Christians are tempted to get into because they think, well, to really have the Holy Spirit, to really have that dynamic Christian life, i got to go to an extreme. So, for example, a guy named, very famous pastor named David Platt, wrote a book called Radical. The whole point was to be radical as a Christian. Because if you really want to prove you're a Christian and really have the Holy Spirit, you got to live that real radical life and go through all these extreme points. I've seen other pastors and preachers, if they have a de-emphasis on the sacraments, what they're going to do is they're going to emphasize emotionalism. They're going to emphasize something that is extraordinary and they're going to put a whole bunch of requirements and demands on the church because if you don't live up to this point or that extreme, you don't really have it. You don't really have that Holy Spirit baptism. That's what's going on in the back of their mind and the rhetoric. The issue is this, is that when you appreciate, and here's, where, here's what's really helpful, when you appreciate the ordinary means of grace, you know what's good about it? You become an ordinary person. You don't become a weird extremist that nobody wants to be around. All right? So the ordinary means of grace, the sacraments and God's Word, that's how, as how and through the Holy Spirit works. And if you don't appreciate that, you're going to be tempted to replace that with something else, something better. And it's not better. It's just going to make you kind of odd. That's why Jesus' baptism 
you can see it, yes, it applied historically with Pentecost, but then it continues after Pentecost into the church through the ordinary means of grace. And when people appreciate it rightly, they can understand that that's how God is feeding my soul continually, continually on a daily basis. And you may say this, well, I don't remember ever being baptized. And I would say this, no, you actually do. Because every Sunday, you are reminded of your baptism. Whenever we confess our sins, it's said to those who are baptized in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, who come now with faith and repentance, know that God has forgiven you. That's how baptism is continuing, continuing to work for the rest of your life. The effect of baptism is not at that one time. It is continuing the rest of your life. That's how the Holy Spirit works. It's always looking forward. Another way in which people try to ante up on the sacraments and replace the sacrament is, I have to say this, they may invite you to a church camp one summer. And you had this emotional experience. And they'll say, well, since you had that emotional experience, you need to get rebaptized. Okay, so all they're doing there is replacing the original sacrament with another sacrament or a redoing of the sacrament. That's not necessary to get rebaptized. Baptism is simply initiating, beginning, it's starting something. It's a water drop that just from heaven, so to speak, that begins something. Now you grab it with faith. You don't need to repeat it, repeat it, repeat it, and then live like a an extremist or something to make it better. The point is you want to be an ordinary person with the ordinary means of grace and God will mature you and grow you over time in his image. That's why, that's how and why Jesus still baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Now, let's move to Jesus's background for the conclusion of this sermon. The background is seen in this I want to talk about. Nathaniel comes to Jesus, excuse me, before he comes to Jesus. Did you notice what he said? And many people pick up on this. Verse 46, Nathaniel says, what good or can any good come out of Nazareth? He hears this man came out of Nazareth and and, uh, he's shocked that the Messiah would come out of Nazareth. Philip says, come and see. And notice what Jesus says. And what Jesus says here is his response to what Nathanael just said. Jesus says, Behold, an Israelite indeed in whom there is no deceit. He means this. Nathanael, you're not lying. I want you to think about this. He just said, Can any good thing good come out of Nazareth? And Jesus is saying, Nathanael, you're not lying. You're telling the truth. Now what? What's going on here? Let me give you two answers. They're both true, I think. The first answer is according to Jesus' human nature in the sense of this. Jesus seems to be sarcastic or ironic or maybe even laughing at Nathaniel. He hears that Jesus came out of Nazareth and uh, that's what Nathaniel hears. And um, Jesus, out of sarcasm or or ironically says, <clears throat> Nathaniel, you're not lying. I came from Nazareth. You know, some way, in some way, he's mocking what Nathaniel just said. 
Um, you think about all the, the good people that have come out of Centerville, Mississippi. And if somebody said, what good can come out of Centerville, Mississippi? You can point to that person, that person, the son and daughter of that person. A lot of good can come out of Centerville, Mississippi. So I think that that's a truth there. According to Jesus' human nature, he came out of Nazareth and he's mocking Nathaniel. But I think John wants you to look at this and realize this. That Jesus is agreeing with Nathaniel. That Jesus is saying, you're speaking the truth, Nathaniel. Nothing good can come out of Nazareth. Because I didn't come from Nazareth. I came from heaven. John has introduced that Jesus not only came from heaven, but Jesus created heaven. John's gospel is saying that the word of God made all things and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. Philip or Nathaniel right now, all he thinks is that Jesus came from Nazareth and and Jesus is saying, Nathaniel, you'll understand. I came. I created heaven. I created all things. Nazareth is not my place of origin. Nazareth is not my background. According to his divine nature, Jesus Christ is God. So I think that's the deep meaning there of the two ways of looking at this beautiful quote <clears throat> and why Jesus says that, that Nathaniel is telling the truth. Humanly speaking, he seems to be laughing at what Nathaniel says. But divinely speaking, according to Jesus' real source of origin, Jesus is saying, you're right, there's, there's no town on earth where a sinless man can, can come from. A sinless man is only God. A sinless man is Jesus Christ who comes from the throne room. And that's what we see for the rest of John's gospel. We see the Savior who has come from heaven. <clears throat> People think he only came from Nazareth. They don't really see his real point of origin. And you see that the third person of the Holy Trinity has baptized Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ takes that same third person of the Holy Trinity and He baptizes you in the sacrament of baptism. And Jesus says, take those promises, believe them. Take those covenant promises, own them, don't ever let go. This belongs to you. You're a child of God. Come and see the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's how John begins the book. And it invites you as a trailer to read the rest of it and see your relationship with this Savior. Let us pray. Almighty God, we give you thanks for our time together. We give you thanks, Lord, for all the blessings of your covenant. We pray, Lord, that you will continue to give us the grace to improve upon our baptism with faith, repentance and perseverance therein to the end. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Let us stand and sing our concluding hymn 376.
follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. I have decided to follow Jesus. No turning back. Behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. The world behind me, the cross before me. No turning back, no turning back. I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow. Though none go with me, I still will follow.